0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week, I'm very happy to say that we have Larry Samuel on the show, and we'll be talking about his fascinating book, Shrink, A Cultural History of Psychoanalysis in America. I uh, found this book very, very interesting, partially to do with the fact that I have had uh, some contact with the psychological profession. Yes, uh, very helpful people they are. And I didn't really know much about the origins of it in the American context, except to say that it was kind of an import. Uh, Larry does an excellent job of explaining a lot more than that. And the kinds of ebb and flow of, in this case, psychoanalysis in American culture. Why in America psychoanalysis was for a moment very popular, and uh, why it has become less popular and more popular over time, and who the key figures were in disseminating it, and I, I guess I would say adapting it to American culture, because that's a major portion of the book. So, Larry, thank you for writing the book, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much, Marshall. Good to be here. Yeah, so maybe you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. Again, uh, my name is Larry Samuel. I live um, in Miami most of the year, but I, I, I spend summers in New York City, um, I grew up in New York and right now I am an author and consultant. I, um, w- write books, um, all over 20th century cultural history pretty much. And, um, do some consulting on the side, um, sort of offering cultural insights to fortune 500 companies under the name culture planning. So, um, that, that's sort of my gig, either, either writing cultural history or, you know, sort of reading American culture, contemporary American culture for, for clients today,
0: mm-hmm. uh, So those Mm -hmm. are my two jobs. Mm -hmm. So tell us why you wrote Shrink, a cultural history of psychoanalysis in America.
1: Yeah, well, I had written um, another book called Freud on Madison Avenue um, a few years ago, uh, which was all about motivation research and subliminal advertising. And um, it was that sort of technique was the darling of Madison Avenue during the 50s. And this guy, Ernest Dichter, maybe your listeners have have heard of Dichter, uh, used uh, of Freud's theories and psychoanalytic theories to do his work. So I got interested in psychoanalysis sort of through the back door, through Ernest Victor's work and through motivation research. I wanted to know more about you know, these theories and techniques that he was using and that became so popular in advertising the 50s. So this is just sort of the backdrop to that. Um, and the more I delved into it, the more fascinating it became. Um, the other reason I wrote it, I happened to be on a bus in New York City, and I saw um, an ad on the bus for T-Mobile um, with the headline, Give Your Faves Phone Envy. Give your faves, <laughs> like favorites, phone envy. And I realized it was a reference to Freud's you know, more anatomical theory, and it, it, it led me to believe you know, how entrenched uh, the language uh, of psychoanalysis and, and, and Freudian uh, language particularly is in American culture. Uh, and so I started doing research and found that it went, you know,
0: all the way back to really the, the beginnings after World War One is when this all started. Mm-hmm. So uh, I found it a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could jump right into the story. How does, uh, do you want to limit it to psychoanalysis? How does psychoanalysis come to the United States? Yeah, well,
1: Freud um, is developing his theories around the turn of the 20th century in Vienna, of course. Uh, he does make a trip to, uh, America in 1909, it's a disaster. He, is, 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 he gets stomach um, disease and he's sick and everything. He hates America after that. Um, but it really, isn't he says, he'll never come back, and he never does. Actually, after being invited um, to Clark University, where the president was a big fan of Forest Theory, so there is some some trickling in from Europe uh, for Forest theories before World War One. But it isn't really till after the war that they hit America big time. Right after the war. Um, modernism, of course, is approaching and encroaching everywhere. And um, the cultural elite and Bohemians start hearing about his theories and embrace it. Um, so that's really the beginnings of it. Um, it's sort of a top-down. You know, they they take it on, and then eventually it trickles down into middlebrow culture, mm-hmm. into where just you know ordinary people are using the language of psychoanalysis in ordinary conversations
0: in the 1920s. Who were the people who popularized it up in terms of psychoanalysis itself in the United States in the 1920s? Were there particular uh, sort of, um, I guess, stars who spoke to this cultural elite?
1: Um, it was more wealthy people, it mm-hmm. became, you know, sort of a, a rich man's plaything is, is what it was called. Um But also, in the village in Greenwich Village, the bohemian sort of artistic archetypes, types embraced it. They were interested more in the just the intellectual component which we forget about. just it was just this you know new body of research and ideas that no one really had thought about before. you know principally the idea of the unconscious was 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 basically the breakthrough idea that there's this you know entirely new territory that we had yet to explore. It was interesting that it came sort of right after the, you know the the closing of the American frontier. You know, at the end of the, the 20th century, Frederick Jackson Turner, you know, famously said that, you know, where we basically have explored the continent, we're running out of land. Well, here was this new territory, you know, more of an ideological one or an idea-based one that was, was open territory. So I think that was part of the appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's terms like, you know, uh, suppressed desires or conflicts began to appear in ordinary conversations um, immediately uh, in the 1920s as Freud's ideas take the country by storm. Mm-hmm. Um, you also see it showing up in novels, you know, by Sherwin Anderson or Theodore Treiser and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, you could tell that writers now, novelists in particular, are are reading Freud or at least um, learning about him and are using some of his ideas to shape some of their narratives, which is, which is, which spreads further, you know, into uh, readers because then they start reading um, the novels and learning the language. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's coming everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also seeing it even in interpretations, like literary criticism. Like, people are starting to think, um, well, what if Shakespeare was familiar with Freud? You know, is there Freudian ideas, even though it was 300 years before? Yeah, Freud, you know, in the language of of Hamlet or Macbeth, like there seemed to be woven in those narratives some some Freudian ideas. So it, it's happening in criticism as well.
0: Mhm. And and what did these intellectuals, I guess I would call them, hope to accomplish with Freudianism? Were they critiquing American culture or did they hope to uh find uh, themselves? And this is something you talk about in the book about the Americanization of psychoanalysis.
1: Right. I think I think it's 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 to that idea that um that a lot of our mind, a lot of what we were thinking and even how we're behaving uh... stems from the unconscious was was really the the truth that we're not really in, in control basically because it was a reminder that we were animals, you know, that were slaves to the basic drives of hunger and sex and and our desires. So just as, you know, everything else is becoming modern and during the machine age, here was this sort of alternative idea that brought us back to the idea that we were not machines that we're animals and we're basically, uh, a slave to our desires. Um, especially towards what happened to us, you know, in childhood, which again is a key Freudian idea that childhood trauma, um, basically will imprint us for the rest of our lives. So that, um, really was intriguing to people as is the idea of dreams. You know, if you went to a party in, uh, any kind of smart cocktail party and talk about your dreams, they would be interpreted through a Freudian lens. So, you know, instantly, people start reading things uh, through a Freudian lens, especially dreams. So that's very intriguing to people.
0: Mm-hmm. How did the uh, I guess what I would call it the establishment, although it wasn't very well established at the time, psychiatric mm-hmm. and psychological establishment, I guess? How did how did it respond to the uh, growth right. of Freudianism in popular culture?
1: I think one of the keys that psychoanalysis takes hold so quickly here and so, so firmly is that there really wasn't uh, an established psychiatric committee as, as much as in Europe. It was pretty much still evolving here in America, whereas in Germany and in Austria, it went back quite a few decades. So there, of course, they were much more resistant to Freud's idea, ironically. He was except within the inner circle you know, in Vienna. With people a lot like Freud, um, the general public was not really interested in ideas. Whereas in America, they, the psychiatric community was still taking shape, and psychoanalysis just you know took hold. That became the dominant method of psychoanalysis, and it had a good what fifty year run, forty year run before other therapies started um, really to, to you know to, to erode that in a significant way. Mm-hmm. Um, but just all kinds of folks began using the therapy in different ways. You had doctors. Um, for the first time, really, in America, seeing the link between the mind and the body, which went back, of course, all the way to Hippocrates and, and other folks, but here now, you know, they're looking at patients and thinking a pneumonia, typhoid fever, even the flu, it could be due to a lack of love in that person's life, or if someone had impaired vision or hearing. Um, they're thinking now yeah, that might be a result of some sort of childhood psychic conflict, which is just a huge breakthrough in medicine. People in Western medicine never really thought about the mind in that way. So that was a huge contribution of the field as mm-hmm.
0: well. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that I noticed in reading the book about the appeal of this to a certain elite, a money elite lead in America, is that I know I've studied the history of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous a little bit. I've written a little bit about that. And uh, one of the kind of key moments in the origins of Alcoholics Anonymous is uh, a person who is an alcoholic and goes and seeks treatment on the advice of his, these are all Manhattanites, uh, goes and seeks treatment with Jung uh, in Switzerland mm-hmm. uh, for alcoholism. He does it a couple of times. These are very moneyed people. The idea is that he has yeah. to go to Europe to get the real cure, because that's where it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It,
1: d- yeah, it d- becomes a real a real status symbol. It's a real social, uh, you know, a sign of social status that you are engaged in learning more about yourself. You mm-hmm. know, it was sort of a, a, this inward discovery that if you had the time and money and you needed lots of it, but um, a good number of people in the 1920s did, you, you know, you would take, take, take that trip.
0: Mm-hmm. Where did you go to get uh, training to be a psychoanalyst in the 1920s and 30s in the United States? Did you go back to Europe?
1: Yeah, you would have to. There were, there were really no um, training institutes uh, in, in the United States until until the 1930s. You would have to go to Europe. And this is after, of course, earning a medical degree. It wasn't until much later, sort of, I think it was like the 70s or 80s, where non-physicians were allowed to become analysts. So you would get your medical degree. And then on top of that, spend a number of years, uh, you know, in a psycho- psychoanalytic institute in Europe, uh, preferably Vienna, where you would be psychoanalyzed. And that was actually part of the, the, uh, the education as well. And then you would come back to America. So it was an incredible commitment, and um, which is why you see very few young ones. You'd have to be almost forty by the time you would become mm-hmm. an analyst. Um, and then in the thirties, of course, you had hundreds of emigre uh, Jewish emigre, you know, analysts fleeing Nazis. So that's that happened in a big way uh, in the thirties when all those analysts came over and sort of seeded what happened in, during the war and after the war when, mm-hmm. like when that that much bigger
0: yeah let's talk about that a little bit it really takes off um after the war that is it becomes a, not just a, a language in which elites speak about things and interpret things but a lot more people start to seek out analysts and a lot more americans start to become analysts and it also takes hold i should say um i'm guessing it took hold in just certain areas of the united states the most important of which being new york but a couple of other yeah, places can, can you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah, yeah. well, most of those analysts did settle uh, in New York um, and to this day, uh, New York City and specifically Greenwich Village around 10th Street is the highest density of psychoanalysts and psychiatrists in, in the world. Um, but basically, um, after the 20s, it was sort of faddish in a way and it died down a bit in the 30s because it was seen as a rich man's plaything. Anything associated with, with the wealthy elite was, was sort of disliked at the time. It was blamed, you know, it's sort of an excess of the 1920s So in the 1930s, it was really unsure what was going to happen. World War II really legitimizes um, the method, as it's called, or the talking cure, because now you have people in in high positions in the government and the military uh, who come from a psychoanalytic background, like Menninger, for example. Um, So it's basically blessed by the government and um, achieved sort of an official endorsement. As, as, as a legitimate uh, you know therapy rather than just a, a fad. So that's the basis of the foundation for what happens after the war when it becomes really part of middle-class culture. You know, you go back in movies or, or even television shows and you can see references to psychoanalysis. psychoanalysis. So it, it, it basically trickles down from the wealthy, leaf, from you know, bohemian culture into mass culture. Um, you're seeing Americans with basically simple troubles. Oh, um, this is Draper, by the way, Betty Draper, you see that, of course, mm-hmm. the Mad Men, you know, who has some issues. She goes to, um, a psychoanalyst in, in, in the first season. So that's a good example of really what happened in their life. Um, basically Americans think of it as sort of getting a checkup instead of your physical body, you know, you're going to the doctor or dentist, you know, you, you're going to shrink now to check up on, on, on what's going in your mind. So it really becomes part of mass culture. Um, the critics really don't like this. They just feel like Americans have too much money on their, you know, time in the hand. The method was never designed for the general public or the masses, which was true. Freud would have been shocked. He died in 1939. But he would have been shocked to see how broad his therapy had become and how diluted it had become because of. Didn't resemble what he what he envisioned um, in the early part of the 20th century at all in some ways. And he just just to, just to um, stop but, there. He envisioned but basically it. It take old America. You have um, neo Freudians who are splitting off from Freudians. You know the strict Freudians still look through um, life through a sexual lens. Basically, the analysts tend to be aloof and formal and very tough on patients. Whereas these neo Freudians, which is entirely new school. Um, don't focus as much on sexuality as aggression as, as our, our primary tribe, and they're warmer, they're less formal, they're sympathetic, and this lays the foundation, of course, for the behavioral and cognitive movement in the 60s and 70s, which still today is the dominant method of therapy. So you're seeing lots of spin offs pop up in the 50s. You have uh, client-centered or non directive therapy from Carl Rogers, even Dianetics by... Elon Hubbard who becomes, you know, Mr. Scientology. Um, and you're also seeing in the fifties it grow in pop culture. So, you know, the method becomes sort of a staple of in, in sort of highbrow culture like the New Yorker cartoons we remember, or the Jules uh Pfeiffer cartoons in the Village Voice and just some jokes. People are telling knock knock jokes with the analyst as sort of the butt of the joke. This is just ordinary, you know, Americans who are very familiar. With the language and
0: discourse of psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I found this uh, part about uh, what Freud intended and what transpired on American soil to be very interesting. Could you talk a little bit about what Freud intended with psychoanalysis? Did he believe it was simply just for extraordinarily sick people, or Marcel? Yeah, uh, I don't. Can you? I don't hear you as well. Oh, I'm sorry. There- let me let me let me try this again. Let me play a little sure, bit with the oh, Hold on. Okay. Okay. No, can much. you hear me now?
1: Um, a little better. I don't know what if it's. I've got my phone on Mac, but
0: Let's try one more time. Okay, can you hear me now? I can. It's um, not as good as what it was. Huh. Well, let me. Actually, earlier, I, I, I could. I could call you back and we could try for a new line.
1: Um. Yeah. I but, just want to make sure I can hear your question.
0: Okay. Is this all right then? Okay. Okay. So. Yeah. All right. So uh, the question is. I was very interested in this thing that you said about Freud's original intent with psychoanalysis and the way that it developed uh, on American soil in the 1950s. What did Freud originally intend psychoanalysis to do and, uh, and, and what was its clientele or who was its clientele?
1: Right. Yeah, well, in Europe, in, in Vienna, he did treat um, wealthy people. They were really the few people that could afford uh the therapy to see him or his colleagues, you know, who had the time and money to do it. Um most of them were women. Um we have to remember that Vienna, you know, circa nineteen hundred was an entirely different place than America in the fifties. Um but he really screened his candidates carefully. I mean they did have to have money, but uh it was just, he had to be intrigued by the particular problem. Um I don't know if some of your listeners saw The Dangerous Method, the movie, you know, that, that recently came out. It, you know, these were people real, with real emotional issues. Um, he just didn't want to, you know, treat people who were slightly depressed, which is what, of course, happened later in, in, the, in, in sort of post-war America. Um, so he had to be intrigued by the problem. These people have serious issues, but not be insane. Basically, psychoanalysis will not work for them, he felt. But he was basically feeling that if you could get a third of the people cured, a third of the people like slightly improved, and a third of the people no improvement, he was doing a good job. That's all that he had hoped for. He never felt that his therapy or any kind of psychiatric therapy would make people happy. He didn't believe people could be happy. He just wanted to get people to what he called essentially an ordinary state of, of misery. <laughs> so he was not what you call a cockeyed optimist. He really mm-hmm. looked towards the darker side of human behavior and his therapy was well suited for that. I mean, that's what he wanted people to talk about in free association, to, you know, was the dark stuff in their unconscious. He wanted to really get at that stuff that was traumatic in their childhood. Um, and reach the surface. Um, and it was only then he felt that you could achieve synthesis, which is sort of the unity between your conscious thoughts and your unconscious. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So he um, saw therapy as a place to have a kind of cathartic moment that wouldn't be particularly pleasant, but would be revealing.
1: Um,
0: I'm, I'm sorry, can, can you... I, I'm, I heard the cathartic moment. But oh, um, so yeah, so he saw therapy as a kind of cathartic moment, one that wouldn't be particularly pleasant but would be revealing.
1: Yeah, he he really wanted to. Yeah, it would take years sometimes to reach that breakthrough uh, point, but that was the goal. Um, he expected it to take take years, over sometimes as much as five times a week, uh, to penetrate deeply into that unconscious for that childhood experience that you had that really imprinted you and made you an unhappy person as an adult. But eventually, you would have that breakthrough. It wasn't at all like in the movies where, you know, someone who couldn't walk because of some traumatic event in their childhood could suddenly walk because of it coming up in conversation.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) That was obviously Hollywood's version of it. But there would be... In essence, a cathartic moment moment where you would be healed from your past and you would be a happier, at least a more content person in your daily life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Right. But in the 1950s, I I guess what you're saying is that it became an aspect of the American pursuit of happiness. That is, uh, Americans used it to treat, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, either situational depression or chronic depression.
1: Right. I I think as we became a more therapeutic culture and as, um, you know, the therapy movement sort of wed itself to the self-help movement, we began to think of happiness as an entitlement that we deserve to be happy, that we should be happy and that we weren't, if we weren't unhappy, there was something wrong with us. Whereas Freud, you know, didn't see that way at all. You know, he, he did not expect us to be happy, but in America we're an optimistic sort of can-do culture there was a long history of um, of looking towards other people to help solve our problems, to help make us happy, and psychoanalysis sort of glommed onto that and became seen as a way to you know to to get that happiness. Um, but I don't blame Freud for, you know, the narcissism that's all around us, for this me-based culture that really began taking off in the me decade, the 70s, and I think is still with us today. Um, it was really the, the, what I call, you know, the, the mix therapies and then our drug-based thera- uh, the therapeutic culture that turned Americans into, you know, people that expected therapy therapy to deliver happiness to them. Freud never promised that. He didn't expect that. He would be appalled by what happened, you know, in America with, with, with therapy. So it was a much different brand of therapy as he envisioned it, um, during his lifetime to the thirties and what evolved here, um, in America. And then, and then much later. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. And pretty quickly, there is a, a, a backlash by the 1960s. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you know Freud's idea which ideas which were conceived in Vienna uh in the early part of twentieth century just don't have much currency anymore in you know say mid nineteen sixties america there's it, you don't have to be repressed, you can do it pretty much ever you want, so the idea of repression just sort of goes away. you know we're not a repressed culture anymore. So they just start not playing well. I think I write in my book that his ideas start looking as dated as a Victorian horsehair sofa. <laughs> you know, they just, they just they just look really dated, against, especially against you know what's going on in other therapy. You know, you have these turtleneck, warm and cuddly, fuzzy therapists versus the strict Freudian. And it would become an anti-authoritative authoritative culture at that point. So anyone, especially a psychoanalyst. Just doesn't just doesn't fare very well. Um, You know, you see that in Annie Hall. It's a great example of contrasting the new kind of therapy that that uh, that Annie Hall is going to versus Woody Allen's character who's going to the strict Freudian. Um, And it just gets worse after that in the 70s. You know, the method goes into a tailspin, Um, partly because of managed care. Insurance companies are very happy to cover pharmacology and and these uh, sort of quick fix therapies. Ten sessions and you're out, versus psychoanalysis, which takes years. You know they don't really want to cover that, so that's another big blow to to this particular form of of, of, of therapy. Um, that only can, got worse, you know, in the in the H HMO era of, of the '80s and '90s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a huge backlash. You have other therapies like encounter groups, you know, in the '70s, you know, which are just much hipper than just talking about your problems. Now you're moving or touching. Um, it's basically the whole countercultures rejection of discipline and authority and all kinds of other therapies. I think there's like 200 therapies (laughs) uh, by 1970 with psychoanalysis just as a therapy, maybe counting for 2%. Uh, But the big point I make in my book is that the role of psychoanalysis in American culture far exceeds its role as a therapy as far back as the 1950s mm-hmm. um, it becomes a really minor presence uh, on, on the therapy scene uh, but ubiquitous in popular culture you know it just becomes sort of a staple trope in movies or television or books which is really the main point I'm much more interested in how it played out in everyday life and its role just as sort of um, this strange set sort of theories that fully developed mm-hmm. as a therapy
0: Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about that. You mentioned Annie Hall, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, where else do we see it in, say, American popular culture and in, I guess, quotidian life?
1: Um, well, I mean, there was a long history in the movies. You know, Spellbound is a, is a great example of, 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 of seeing it, you know, sort of in the post-war era. But by the time, you know, the, the 80s and 90s roll around, you're seeing it, of course, um, in The Sopranos which sort of puts it over the top, because it's a more or less accurate depiction of the process. You know, you have this complex character who had childhood trauma. I think it was that his father, you know, he saw his father killed, who was also a gangster, and has this contentious relationship with his therapist, who's in turn seeing her own therapist, which often happens. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's The Sopranos, and then after that, the uh, Gabriel Byrne, you know, entreatment, which seals it as a staple of American pop culture. Mm-hmm. But you can see it, you know, in The Simpsons, you know, there's yeah. references to, to, to psychoanalysis, which is, which I think is great. So if, if Homer Simpson is talking about Freud's theories, you know it's everywhere in American culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It also appears in, again, one, one of my favorite movies called House of Games. Have you seen this movie? It's a David Mamet uh, play made into a movie and it uh it is um it's very freudian and, and it's about a psycho uh, well it's okay, about I'm a psychologist sorry, so What's it what's it called? It's called House of Games.
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah it's there
0: and it's good. a really, it's a really that's terrific good. movie. I, I really enjoyed it. So, um I I guess one of the things I'm interested in is what why does it hang on in the 60s and 70s when um it seems to have fallen out of fashion among many practitioners?
1: Yeah, well, it's sort of an amazing story because just when you do think it's dead in the water as a result of all the blows that it's taken, you know, mostly there's no scientific proof that it's working. You know, the feminists have complained against it. The Vatican has complained against it. Um, You know, managed care isn't covering anymore. It basically, you think it'll just completely go, go away. But in the 90s, it makes it, it. does make a comeback, just as spraculous is sort of getting popular, ironically, because what a couple of things are happening. What people are finding is that these mix therapies, you know, these short-term fixes just don't stick. The results do not stick. You cannot go for just a few sessions and have something, you know, from your child, a deep trauma, just solved. Um, so a lot of patients are finding that they're attracted to more long-term therapies than drugs or you know which will not make your problems go away they might cover them up or these quick fix therapies so just on the therapeutic level there's a backlash against 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 the short-term fixes towards psychoanalysis you're also seeing um, basically neuroscience for the first time proving that um, a lot of choice theories do seem to be rooted in biology that there is an unconscious you know that the MRI scans can prove that a lot of our mental activity is taking place in this zone of the brain that is not conscious to us, really does support, support Freud's theories. And Freud was a neuroscientist. We forget that. He was a you know, neuroscientist in the late 1900s, but he was a neuroscientist, and he predicted that biology would one day prove that his theories were correct, mm-hmm. which happened. So the first time, there's scientific validity. Um, You're also having psychoanalysis become sort of a kinder, gentler therapy through psychodynamic therapy. So it isn't the strict Freudian therapy that it was, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. There is some, some room for the therapist to borrow for, you know, have a more eclectic approach. dip into some other therapies not have to go five times a day, which the insurance company isn't going to pay for. So I think through that, it sort of realized it has to modify itself to reach, you know, to stay alive. So um, I think that's a, a is another reason why the method is, is still exists today. And it happens to be stronger than it was in the last few decades. I think mm-hmm. it, there are about a number of patients today as it was in the late 60s. So um, it made a good, a good comeback. I call it the comeback couch.
0: Yeah. And another thing that I found interesting was that, uh, and I know this from personal experience as an academic, somebody who went to graduate school in the in 1980s, early 1990s, and that is that it never died in academia. Uh, there was a, there, yeah. It never died there,
1: right? No, that's true. It was always in in academia. The, ironically, it was not in psychology books, purely you know, except as a footnote. But you would find references to it in in history yeah. in other disciplines. Psychology tended to marginalize it, but you know, the intellectual elite to this day were always attracted to psychonauts. Yeah,
0: literary, literary, yeah, literary criticism is 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 still uh, quite quite wedded to it. Um, and cultural yeah, criticism theory, is still quite wedded to Le, it Yeah, uh-huh. Lacan sure. right exactly it's, it's still very wedded to this, this uh, to that program so I mean one thing I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about is, uh, uh, is I guess I mean I'm thinking of a person who might listen to the show and say yeah I want to see a psychoanalyst today right. how are psychoanalysts trained today and how do you go about seeing them I don't know the answer to that question, even though, as I said in the sort of introduction, right. I, I do see uh, someone. It is not a psychoanalyst. Yeah. An, an uh, right. And, and so how do, you, how do you go about it? What is the culture of it today?
1: Well, I mean, of course, you could just ask your friends who they're saying. But, yeah. but there's tons of references. So psychology Today has, you know, the, the magazine and the website has a wonderful... Um, you know, website devoted towards finding a therapist. Um, and then you just sort of learn more about their method. And what you would find today is that it would be very hard to find a strict Freudian psychoanalyst. I would challenge you to do so, except in certain pockets of, of New York City in the village, perhaps. Um, so if, if this person does use any of um, psychoanalytic theory, it would be more through psychodynamic in that, again, this kind of sort of gentler borrowing on some of Freud's ideas, but a much more eclectic approach that borrows on, you know, cognitive and behavioral, um, that's rooted in some of what Freud's ideas, you know, are talking about, that there might have been some childhood trauma, that a lot of what we're thinking about takes place in the unconscious. Those aren't going to change. Those are just based the staples of the field. But without the, the craziness, some of the, the really strict stuff that Freud had, you know, back in the early days that you weren't allowed to make any important decisions while you were in therapy, you know, that um, you had to go five times a week, all kinds of, of, of really rigid rules that were hurting the field. So um, you know, I would encourage person to, to go to that website or, or go to another website where there's you know, references to different therapists. And just see what their method is, mm-hmm. um, but you'll definitely find that you know the talking cure is still sort of the backdrop towards therapy. You know, talking with someone, either just discussing the problems or working with your therapist and trying to solve them, which Freud would never have done, to offer advice of any kind. But of course, therapy is, mu- is is much more about that today.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that the talking cure because sometimes I call it that. I know that when um, when I see the person I see, we talk about my past. Usually. Right. And, and it, you know, again, I have read a lot of Freud. I even taught some Freud at one point in my academic career. Uh, and I'm right. very cognizant of the fact that that method, the talking cure, and particularly, you know, if it is uh, hysterical, it's historical. This has right. uh, become a kind of bedrock of all talking cures, no matter where you're trained.
1: Well, pretty much. I mean, you know, for the brief time there was, the, you know, the encounter group where people didn't want to talk. They really just wanted to touch and move and forward, or the primal screen therapy, you know, which moved away from talking. But I think people got back to talking, and they were, And now the wave is not to just talking about your problems, but really trying to solve them. And your therapist plays an advisory role in trying to steer you the right direction, which is a deviation from... from.
0: from oh, psychology. yeah. They give advice. There's no question. Totally. They give advice. They definitely yeah, do. They do. Yeah, they do. They give
1: advice. I, I think also... Yeah, but there is much more of a present day focus on uh, uh, on therapy today, you know, the therapists I know um, sort of my friends really stress the, the present and try not to dwell on the past. Yeah, yeah. Um, I personally think you know you're a product of your past. That the past is who we are. You know the present is very fleeting. It's like gone. Yeah, it, it is. It, yeah. It is. The future hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So what do we really have? We're we're,
0: we're receptacles of the past. I right. think. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. So what do you see as the future of psychoanalysis in America? I mean, you, you say it's a little bit on the uptick tick right now. Um, what, what 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 kind of your general stance toward it? Right. Well, I'm sort of I'm
1: sort of bullish on it again, be, you know, because of what happened beginning in the '90s with with neuroscience, basically supporting a lot of Freud's theories, and the backlash against uh, against quicker cures and Prozac Nation. So I'm I'm sort of bullish on it. I'm also bullish on it because it's expanding to Europe, ironically, after 100 years after it left Europe. It's going to places like, like spain it's very popular right now, and it's also becoming incredibly popular in Asia in China and India. Um, a lot of Chinese are using Skype to talk with analysts in the United States and mm-hmm. now finally a lot, a lot more analysts are, 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 are can be found in China for the first time. So if you think about a billion people who had not been exposed to this therapy they're basically a hundred years too late mm-hmm. um, that's a huge number of people to um, you know, to be to be in psychoanalysis. In mm-hmm. analysis. So I'm encouraged for that extent as well. And uh, I think basically that, through just the legitimacy that it is more of a science as, uh, rather than just an art, which it was considered until uh, data basically proved a lot of its theories. Uh, but now we have MRIs, you know, basically proving that a lot of our, our thoughts are in the unconscious. So um, the biological underpinning to it, I think, is that a reason to be of shaman therapy. Mm -hmm.
0: And so I take it you're a critic of uh, medication for feeling bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. I think if you think about it, it, on one level it's very dated, you know, given its origins, but it's very in sync with the times. You know, to get in touch with who you are as a person, to evolve as a person, particularly baby boomers who are really, you know, trying to march up Maslow's hierarchy, you know, and become self-actualized. This is really a a great way to peel back the layers of of your onion (laughs) and dig deep and find out, you know, who you are, why you've been on Earth, you know, and uh, what the meaning and purpose uh, of your life is and how to engage within the broader community. Psychoanalysis promises all that and I think delivers um, a good part of that.
0: So Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. the
1: -hmm. deepness, the richness of it is very appealing to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, but it's very hard work. I mean, I... Been told by the people that do it and people that uh, um, have had it done to them that it's very hard work. It's it's a commitment. It is hard work. It's a real commitment, yeah. and um, you you know it's, um, it, it's it's not something you you don't yeah. go there just to feel a little bit better after the second session. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that that's always been a source. You just get beat up a lot um, in this form of therapy. Unlike other more feel good, warm and fuzzy, this you do you know get exposed to your darker side learn that you may not be a perfect person or be even like a very good person. But um, after years, hopefully, uh, you do, you know, become a better person and um, know who you are. You know, mm-hmm. the, the motto of uh, of the therapy is basically know thyself. And that process is hard. It's really mm-hmm. digging deep. So learning who you
0: are. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, examining your own life is a very painful thing in any context, whether it's the, you know, the confessional booth or it's the analyst's couch. I don't think they use couches anymore. I've never seen a couch in any shrink's office, but... Um. Yeah, that's, that's a vestige of the past. Yeah.
1: You actually look at your therapist. Yeah. Freud, just didn't, Freud just didn't like to be looked at, which is yeah. really why he was sort of on the side.
0: Right, right, right. And, you know, another thing I was going to say before we conclude is that, um, you know, I I did some research on the uh, sort of industry standard or discipline standard of psychological care for people with uh, psychological ailments as defined by the DSM, whatever we're on now, 5. And Mm -hmm. all the evidence shows that there just isn't enough of it, that there are a lot of people that could use this kind of therapy, but they don't get it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's a tremendous Uh, number
0: of people, a huge number of people, according to, again, if you take what the DSM says is a psychological ailment of one sort or another, and then you say, well, are they getting the standard of care that we would want optimally? They're just not.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think you see it, I think you see it in all around us. I think you, I don't know if you'd call it mental illness, but, you know, you'd see um, really people who are not evolved or have major issues. Uh, who could use some kind of therapy Who right? Right. are not getting it. Right. Um, I think it, it's mostly in our narcissism, you know, and I, I, I'm not a Facebook person. <laughs> you know, that's just an example of these people that really need to be heard. I think we all need to be heard. Yeah. You know, we all have a voice and a lot of people aren't. And when it's not, it comes out in perverse, sort of frustrated ways. And I, and right. I think that, um, to
0: them yeah. problem well I mean this is this is something that I, I did notice when doing this last uh, school shooting I can't remember which one it was there are so many of them um, mm-hmm. immediately after that uh, President Obama and some other people said yeah sure we need to regulate access to guns the number of guns but we also need to expand the level of mental health coverage because these people are sick and they're not yeah. getting treatment and I thought you know here's the moment or people will finally right. take the bull by the horns. It's these sick people that's the problem. I mean, sure, guns, whatever, but right. you know, the number one, most fatalities by firearms, far and away, the most, are by suicide. They're not by that people shooting true. other people. They're by people shooting themselves. And those people, I mean, again, in my mind, uh, you, you know, you can be an existentialist about it and stuff. If you want to shoot yourself, that's pretty much prima facie evidence to me that you have a mental illness of some sort. Maybe, maybe just for right. a moment, but like for some moment, you need help, and people can't get it. You know? Yeah,
1: I think. A, you know a certain class of people or a certain type of person are getting it but it's almost those people need it less yeah. than a lot of other people it should just be much more broadly available yeah
0: i agree to people yeah.
1: and and especially now that the stigma uh, behind it is mostly gone yeah. you know there really isn't the stigma that there used to be
0: yeah no that's right. i mean i can speak to that personally i know that my father was deeply mentally ill and and ended up committing suicide and he was never treated by a shrink Never, right. I would never do it. I mean, we were from Kansas; we just didn't do those things. But in my own life, you know, finally I had to suffer from it for a long time. But then I went, right. and I, and I got to say, you know, did it help? Did it make me happy? No, <laughs> it didn't make me happy. Yeah. But do I, you know, but do I, but do I kind of understand the context of my life? Can I get along a little bit better than I did? Yes, definitely. Yeah. and I owe those people everything. You really hit on
1: it right there. It will not make you happy, probably, because there's a happy. I mean, research shows that too. There's a happiness set point. You can get sort of blips of happiness in your life. You know, you win the lottery, you're happy for a little while, but then you're not, actually. Chocolate makes me happy. Yeah. Chocolate. That's pretty much Um, it. I
0: don't drink anymore, so chocolate.
1: (laughs) There you go. But it it is that sort of context that you see yourself within a broader framework, which is really helpful. Yeah, it's really no, hard to
0: do by yourself. I agree completely. Well, uh, I, I, Larry, I really want to thank you for uh, writing this book and for talking with us today. We've been talking with Larry Samuel about his book, Shrink, a cultural history of psychoanalysis in America. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, but I especially want to thank Larry for being on the show. And I also want to ask him our traditional final question. That is, what are you working on now other than I happen <laughs> to know lying on the beach?
1: <laughs> yes, I am in, in Key West. It could be worse. It's one of the few benefits of being a writer that so you could write pretty much anywhere. Um, I am writing... It's sort of an obscure book, but I just felt it had to be written. I, You know, I'm a cultural historian. I've written about 15 books now about some aspect of American history. I felt, you know what I'm going to write now is a history of American history, hmm. which... Yeah, which sounds really odd, but no no one has ever sort of traced the history of American history, which is a really fascinating one. I mean, oh, yeah. American history, you know, has is, is, is been around <laughs> since America, you know, but I'm sort of picking up again where I began in, in the 1920s and sort of seeing how it changed, because believe it or not, history changes a lot. It's not, you know, a fixed thing. It really changes with the values of a particular time and place. And how. So that's... That's yeah. what I'm writing.
0: Yeah, that's and that's how? Great. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. So anyway, that sounds like a fantastic project, and as a historian, I very much approve of that. Uh, so thanks. I want to I want to uh, congratulate you again on the book, and thank you for being on the show, Marshall. Thank you so much. All right, much. thanks, Larry. Bye bye.